The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Uh, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Longroom Hub for Behind the Headlines. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. Uh, and if it's the first time that you've joined us, let me briefly explain that the Trinity Longroom Hub represents a, a community of scholars who work on original and interdisciplinary research in the arts and humanities. Uh, and we highlight that research in our many public humanities series and events. These include our signature Behind the Headlines series, which is supported by the John Pollard Foundation, and uh, which brings many of our research experts to talk to you uh, in companion with our invited guests uh, to address some of the questions um, that lie behind the news. It will, I think, surprise nobody listening that our first Behind the Headlines panel of the new academic year is on the crisis in Afghanistan. Uh, a crisis that, of course, most of us have seen only uh, at the distance of our television screens, but that the people of Afghanistan have had to endure and continue to endure in great uncertainty and great grief and distress. Uh, it seemed very important to us now that we're some weeks on from the very desperate headline coverage of, uh, of recent weeks, um, that we not only reflect on what happened with the military withdrawal and its consequences, but that we need to think about what happens now. How should we respond to the prospect of a new Taliban regime? How can we offer humanitarian support uh, and what kind of cultural myths and perhaps even stereotypes about Afghanistan or about the ethics of intervention do we need to revisit at this stage? Before I welcome and introduce our panel of experts for this evening, uh, I want to welcome in particular to our audience, Mr. Nasruddin Salyuki, who heads up the Afghan community in Ireland. Nasruddin very graciously wrote to us in advance of this evening's event, uh, and I would like to share with you some of his words. He writes, with the rapid withdrawal of the United States, Afghanistan has fallen into the hands of the Taliban, a radical Muslim militia that does not have any regard for human rights, gender equality, or the civic participation of Afghan citizens. The Afghan economy, is in a nosedive. Women are confined in their homes. Girls and women are facing uncertainty about their education and are in fear of radical action. Journalists are being arrested and beaten. Playing music, listening to music is banned. Women who are peacefully protesting are being dispersed by gas and beaten with cables on the street. Astonishingly, the world is watching, doing nothing in response to these atrocities and criminal acts. 
Well, this evening, we do want to respond to what Nasruddin has raised and to reflect on this crisis. And I'm very grateful to the four panelists who are joining us and who've agreed to share with us to you now in the order that they're going to be speaking to us. So first of all, we'll be hearing from Nelofer Pazira Fisk. Uh, Nelofer is an award-winning Afghan-Canadian author, journalist, and filmmaker. She works between Ireland, Canada, and the Middle East. Uh, and she has starred in the film Kandahar, uh, based on her real life story. She's also directed, produced, and co-produced several other films, including Return to Kandahar. Uh, Nelifa has reported frequently for Canadian and UK media from Iraq, Turkey, Egypt, Syria, and uh, recently Afghanistan. Uh, as a past president of PEN Canada, the Freedom of Expression Organization, she's assisted UNESCO in Afghanistan. Um, and her 2006 book, A Bed of Red Flowers in Search of My Afghanistan, won the Draney Taylor Biography Prize. Uh, Nelifa's charity, Diana Afghan Women's Fund, has been providing education for women in remote parts of Afghanistan. And we're very honored, Nelifa, to have you join us this evening. Our next speaker is Soraya Afzali. Good evening, Soraya. Soraya is an Afghan journalist and a PhD candidate in Near and Middle Eastern Studies here in Trinity. She gained her master's degree in international relations from the Central European University, and she's contributed since to many research projects uh, with the Ministry of Higher Education and the Ministry of Economics in Afghanistan. Uh, she's volunteered for several organizations, including Solace for the Children, the American Councils, and in 2013, Soraya co-founded Humans of Kabul to tell stories about the Afghan people. Uh, Soraya works with many networks on civil society empowerment, including the Open Society Foundation, and she is a recipient of the US Embassy Scholarship and an Open Society Leadership Award. Her research at Trinity is part of Trinity's Network of Excellence Training on Hate, Network of Excellence Training on Hate project, uh, which she may be able to tell us a bit more about in the questions. And our third speaker, I'm very pleased to welcome Vincent Durack, who's Associate Professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin, at UCD. Uh, Vincent lectures in Middle East politics and the politics of development uh, and on terrorism and political violence. His research focuses mainly on various aspects of Middle East politics, including political reform, the role of civil society in the region, and uh, Yemeni political dynamics. Uh, among many posts, he is a member of the Council for the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, but he's also written uh, recently on Afghanistan uh, and particularly on the critical diplomatic positioning of Afghanistan in a world context. He's highlighted the need for a fully informed response from the international community to the Taliban's accession of power and what it means. And Vincent, many thanks for joining us this evening. And our fourth speaker is Roja Fazeli, who is Associate Professor in Islamic Civilizations at Trinity. And I'm very pleased to welcome Roja back to Behind the Headlines. Uh, Roja, as many of you will know, has published widely on the subject of Islamic feminisms, 
on female religious authorities and on women's rights in Iran. She's also written on the relationship between human rights and religion. She is currently chairperson of the board of directors of the Immigrant Council of Ireland and a member of the board of directors of the organization uh, Azedi Andishe, which is Freedom of Thought. She is on the editorial board of the journal Religion and Human Rights. And I would like to mention very uh, particularly that Roja is currently heading up Trinity's campaign to fundraise and host for a scholar at risk from Afghanistan. And again, Roja, I hope you'll be able to tell us a bit more about that uh, venture when, uh, when you speak to us. So that's our panel and each of our guests has 10 minutes to talk to you from whatever perspective they choose on this topic. Uh, after they've spoken, we will open up to questions and answers from you, the audience. You can, as always, submit your Q&A, your questions through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Uh, please, if you can, say your name and perhaps where you're writing from. And as always, if you can keep your questions brief and to the point, uh, it's a great help. Uh, those of you who are watching on Facebook can use the comments section to uh, put your questions. If you are following us on Twitter or if you're using Twitter, our handle is at TLR Hub and the hashtag Hub Matters. And we'll be putting that information in the chat for you, along with a few other links that you may find interesting or useful in relation to tonight's topic. So we come to the question and the subject and the difficulty of Afghanistan and the current crisis. And to open the discussion on this topic, I'm very pleased to welcome Nelifa Pazira-Fisk to talk to you. Nelifa. Thank you, Eve. Um, after volunteering and thinking that I should take the a question from a historical perspective, I started to scratch my head thinking, where can I start? to give, um, give you a sense of political geography of the country in 10 minutes. Um, so the best point of starting for me will be now, because as you mentioned, um, our information comes through the news, whether is it mainstream media or alternative, but nonetheless, that is our starting point of engagement with Afghanistan. And um, the difficulty in watching the news in the last few weeks um, is not just because it's a very simplified version at, uh, at a lot of occasions that would anger us Afghans, um, but also I kind of see that the uh, pendulum goes between the two extremes of whether Afghans are um, romanticized as the brave warriors um, or we are really just the victims, kind of a pathetic or pitiful view of, of Afghans. Um, but I think the fundamental problem with that kind of a, a, a approach and simplification is that it glosses over a multitude of realities that have contributed to the current crisis, to the current conflict uh, that we see splashed across our screens. Um, and, and also the simplified uh, kind of approach to Afghanistan, unfortunately, forces us almost um, uh, uh, kind of almost unconsciously to try to come up with more simplified answers, to come up with simplified suggestions of solutions. And, um, and, and I think there is a great danger in that, especially when we come to the question of what to do about the Taliban now, what to do about the current reality that's 
unfolded in Afghanistan post withdrawal. Um, so I'm just going to flash back very briefly as much as I can within the, the time limit to go back to what I would call the very recent, recent history of 1978-79. And for me, that's personal. I was five years of age when my father was imprisoned by the so-called communist government um, of the time. Uh, he survived, luckily, but we um, I did grow up in Kabul during the Soviet occupation. And, um, and of course, at the time, um, within that 10 years of war, the Soviet Union spent about $5 billion a year um, to subsidize the Afghan economy. So that's the collapse of whatever used to be as a form of economy in the country. Um, and it was also spent to subdue the uprising of the resistance movement that became very famous. And again, unfortunately, very romanticized version of the Mujahideen or the holy warriors. Um, the Americans at that time, within that time frame had spent about four to five billion. Uh, that was matched by the Saudis and by Europeans and by other Islamic countries. The entire amount of that 10 billion plus were spent in supporting the Mujahideen in the form of lethal weapons. And how that weapon and aid was channeled through Afghanistan was through Pakistan and the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, as we have come to know them as ISI, shortly. Now, prior to the Afghan-Soviet war, the Islamists had no base in Afghanistan. Afghan society was very traditional. Um, people, there were moderate communities, but there were also very traditional communities, and they lived side by side. But it is in that war where, with the money that is poured in from CIA channeled to ISI, supporting these Islamist groups that all of a sudden Afghanistan, um, these groups found a, a place in Afghanistan, but not only just a place, but they also found a formidable degree of influence that they could exercise over a population that were poor, that they were fractured because of that war, and the country was in a state of destruction. So the Afghans, to the romantic notion of that the great warriors weren't the freedom fighters that triumphed against tyranny. The Afghans, in my view, were the fuel in that war. They were used as a catalyst. And the unfortunate result of it was the civil war. But let's look briefly at the 1990s. Um, Boris Yeltsin is in Russia. Russia is in a very weak state politically. Benazir Bhutto becomes the Prime Minister of Pakistan, and she wants to open up a route to Central Asia. The drive for this political move is that the discovery of oil and gas resources in the Caspian Sea. And at this time, until 1994, Pakistani Inter-Intelligence Inter Services, or ISI, was pouring loads of money into a man named Gulbuddin Hikmatyar. And Gulbuddin was one of the Mujahideen fighters that um, was the most radical in his religious approach. He was also tried the best of what he could to get rid of minorities in Afghanistan. He killed and massacred as many Hazaras and as, as many Panjshiris and anybody who disagreed with him. And Pakistanis were supporting him. And he was on the CIA's list of receiving the most amount of money that channeled from America to Afghanistan. But by 94, Pakistanis got tired of him because he wasn't winning the civil war. So they tried to find another proxy. And what they tried to do at this time, their interior uh, minister um, named Barber 
um, basically goes around and shops for an alternative. And with the blessing of the Americans, a new group is found and it's called the Taliban. Now, um, the Taliban, of course, take over Kandahar and, and the um, Pakistani interior ministry was heard privately to refer to them as our boys. Um, at this point, I actually would really encourage people, if they're not aware of it, to look into a very good and seminal work by Ahmad Rashid, who is a Pakistani journalist. It's called The Taliban, and it was published in 2000. Um, according to Rashid, after Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, Taliban are the most secretive group that ever exists to this day. And, and I remember that very much because when they went to Kabul, I was doing my master's in Montreal in an interdisciplinary anthropology sociology. The fascination with Taliban was as such because there was no information available about them. Their leader was never photographed and it was considered to be this one-eyed uh, man that was very elusive. Um, I actually added religion to my interdisciplinary studies so I could go and research um, about the Taliban. The Time Magazine at the time referred to them as the army of peace. They're flag was white, they were going to bring a stability to Afghanistan, and of course we understand what was that stability. That stability was in the form of the brutal behavior when they arrived in Kabul. And of course we know the rest of that story, because let's not also forget that the um, Afghan women that George W. Bush went to rescue in 2001 were already brutalized by that regime for four years and the world like right now were mostly remaining silent about the atrocities that were carried out between 94 and 2001 and especially since 1996 when they came to Kabul until 2001. Um, but again the superficial and simplified version was that the Taliban were bad and we were going to save the Afghan woman. So what was ignored at the time, again, because of this simplification, was that the creation of the Taliban, the support for the Taliban, the funding, the arming, what was also um, ignored was the makeup of the Taliban, the details about this group, plus the situation in Afghanistan, post-civil war and post-Taliban, the country was in such a state. So when the US went, instead what happened, they spent, and poured billions of dollars on false economy, false elections, and false security. And here I would like to draw from a personal experience. I had spent a fair amount of time in Kandahar, and in one of those occasions in 2011-2012, I met a German um, journalist, photojournalist, who um, said that his job was there to photograph his tank. And I was quite shocked and I said, what do you mean your tank? Like, did you make it? And he said, no, here is a tank that I photographed. And he showed me the picture in an arms uh, sales uh, setting, in an arms fair. And this is a tank that is produced with some um, equipment and, and mechanical uh, specification from Germany. And he said, the only place in the world where this tank is now put to use is Afghanistan uh, through the NATO forces. And I'm here to photograph it. This is my job. I've come to do that. And I remember very much that in the base of the airfield base in Kandahar, there were glossy pictures and portraits of Lockheed Martin advertising for the newest weaponry that was, it was say, tested and proven. So when you think of that context, that this was the setting for the 20 years 
of the political unfolding in Afghanistan. And I don't have the time to go into the details of all of the, the things that I referenced in terms of the false economy and false elections and, and the false security. Um, but basically the bottom line is that the Taliban number one were kind of a test tube babies of the RSI, but they failed. And so now we are seeing a, a more sleeker version of them coming back to power. The Qataris have replaced the Saudi Arabians at the moment in this equation. And of course, we come back to the question of, so what do we do about them now? From all across around Afghanistan, people are desperately saying, we want peace. And people in the West might say, well, hold on a second. If the Afghans really want this much peace, why isn't there peace? The, maybe part of the answer is, in the geopolitical um, location of the country, it is not, um, the answer is not in the quick references of the Americans and the West in terms of Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires or the Afghans are very tribal and they do not live together and they do not want to be together and they don't recognize each other or they're anti-modern. Um, those are just, again, um, running away uh, phrases and cliche phrases that people are using in the West, especially the politicians to uh, relinquish the responsibility. I think the answer is that the US and the West has a lot to do with the Afghan war, um, but in the last 45 years, it's not just the last 20 years, the Afghans have tried to do the best of what they could in uh, the last 20 years to make the best of life out of the opportunities they had. But how can you have peace when there is no proper economy and when there is no justice? And to sum it up in summary, when you think of Afghanistan, think of arms, um, and arms sales and arms creations and um, uh, production. Think of political agendas, alliances and rivalries. Think of 45 years of imposed violence, imposed um, agendas and imposed elections and imposed peace talks and, and then place Afghans in that context. And the question that I ask myself, do I want to recognize the Taliban as a legitimate force I like the world to engage the Taliban and I like the world to consider Taliban as a political party to be part of an interim government that could, if they have a base of support in Afghanistan by Afghans, they could be part of a government, but do not recognize them as a legitimate government because that's not the wish of, of all of the Afghans. Thank you, um, Nilufar. Just um, building upon what you just said, um, hopefully I can also like uh, draw a picture from my personal experience. Um, well, we have came down to a full circle of violence in Afghanistan, and it is a circle of intergener intergenerational trauma and pain that's been experienced, first by my grandparents, then by my parents, and uh, now by me. As humans and citizens of any country in the world, we must ask questions about Afghanistan today um, because it is no longer an Afghan issue or a problem. And these are the exact words that my father once told me. So let me walk you through some of my personal uh, reflections for the past month. Um, just a little bit about myself. 
my family and I moved back to Afghanistan after the fall of Taliban in 2001. Our streets were muddy and I was studying under the tents on the, in very hot days in Mazar-e-Sharif. But we studied nevertheless. Four months ago, I was in Mazar when I was visiting home. I passed by my high schools. There were buildings, there were classrooms, proper bathrooms, and classes actually had actual ceilings. This entire development took us 20 years. Recovering from any war, and particularly the Afghan war, and, and what we are going through, it takes time. But we did that. We welcomed healing and resilience. With the Taliban's takeover, we are losing our history alongside, alongside human rights, freedom of speech and press, and most importantly, women's rights to work, to education, sports, and all of the development sector are all at risk. And our efforts to preserve our culture and history are all at risk. And not to mention our books and our libraries, the very foundation of a society, they're all gone. The way that I can draw a whole picture for you today is to explain the Afghan problem in an interdisciplinary perspective. It is a proxy war, it is a political religious war, but also it is a war on women. After the Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in the 1980s, Afghanistan became a proxy space for Russia and the United States to fight each other for global imperialism. Pakistan became only a tool to facilitate war in Afghanistan. The Mujahideen, which is Af the Mujahideen, a group of warlords, a fraction of which was supported um, by, by the Pakistan and uh, they were there to fight on behalf of the United States to fight the other fraction that was supported by the Russia. This whole war resulted in the Afghanistan takeover in 1996. Afterwards, the Taliban's regime fell in 2001. Some around the world called it the Cold War, some called it the War for Democracy, but for most of Afghans and for Afghan civilians, including myself, it only meant to fight the terrorism on the front lines with the blood of our soldiers, family members, and friends. While all of this has happened, I want to shed light on several, um, several um, things that happened in this era. One is the cleansing of the Hazara ethnicity. So in the name of religion, which has only been used as a tool for this proxy war for more than 40 years, there has been, there has been a systematic genocide against Hazara ethnicity. Hazaras approximately made about, today they make about 15% of the population. They were once the largest Afghan ethnic group constituting nearly 67% of the population. For my age, I have only witnessed the last few decades of frequent attacks on schools, maternity hospitals, and other educational centers of minorities in Afghanistan. Today, not only the same genocide is happening, but also a new one is taking form in Panjshir, 
which is a, which is a central province to Afghanistan. This province is also the front line of resistance against the occupation of the Taliban and Pakistan. It's become more difficult to understand what is going on in Panjshir these days, as the internet is cut off and the food chains are cut off. Some of the Panjshiri origins people, even in Kabul, are being kidnapped by the Taliban and are taken to the unknown uh, locations. I also want to bring to your attention the situation of Afghan women who are protesting in every corner of Afghanistan, defending their rights as women are told to return to their homes whilst their jobs are being replaced by men. As we speak, our men and young boys are protesting by not going back to school without their sisters. The journalists who have been covering these protests are tortured for long hours for their coverage. Afghan women are silenced once again and are staying home, not knowing what the dark future is bringing them. The Taliban announced women could only hold jobs as bathroom cleaners. We're talking about women leaders, CEOs, parliament representatives, and more. As of the beginning of 2021, women made up more than 60% of the parliament representatives in Afghanistan. We have come a long way since the last two decades. It is all vanishing before our eyes. Today, we're also witnessing the beginning of war on terrorism as ISIS collaborate with Taliban on Afghan soil. We are witnessing the terrorist groups hold positions in the so-called governance that is nothing but a patriarchal structure. These terrorists were nurtured and strengthened in Pakistan for the last 20 years. Now they have a physical space for their operations and will eventually seek legitimization, a legitimization that should not be granted by any country or European country. The Taliban and Pakistan's invasion of Afghanistan, as, as we can see, is also a whole threat to the global security as well. As global community, we face challenges when headhunted, when, when headhunted terrorists and sanctioned terrorists are holding positions in their so-called governance. And, and to fight all of what is happening there now, we have mechanisms as the likes of uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals and peace treaties that has kept the whole world together for the last few decades, or at least, you know, for the last few decades, we have been, we have been developing these goals. Afghan people, and, and particularly Afghan women, are not asking for charity or help. They're asking for your solidarity for implementation of these goals. We have an ancient line of poetry and diversity that stays at the center of our culture, a culture that at this moment deserves safeguarding. And today, many countries ask if they should host Afghan refugees or not, including Ireland. For that end, I have to say that Afghans are not here for your land or for your homes or for your jobs. We are asking, you to host us in solidarity so we can have a space to heal, to, to imagine a peaceful Afghanistan so that we can carry on. And no land for that matter would be able to replace our homes. And we will go back someday as our generations will be more strengthened 
and we have a clear vision of a practical peace for Afghanistan. Uh, thank you, Soraya. Um, and I guess it's my turn to, to reflect on some of these issues. I'd like to uh, pick up on some of the themes, in fact, raised by Nilofar and by Soraya. Uh, I, I, in my comments, I want to say something about geopolitics in a more contemporary setting, um, and that inevitably uh, raises the, 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 the question, uh, Soraya's allusion to the, the whole question of terrorism within Afghanistan, both at the heart of the new regime and, and more generally uh, in the country. And in particular, what I want to focus on uh, is uh, the critical governance challenge, if you like, that faces the new rulers of the country, uh, such as they may be, as they move or as they aspire to move from an insurgency to behaving something like uh, state-like actors uh, in Afghanistan. And this in turn raises key questions about how the uh, Taliban uh, in this new governing incarnation um, will manage the, the challenge of juggling the need for uh, necessary external support uh, because of critical uh, economic and humanitarian challenges that will face anybody. Uh, who is uh, uh, attempting, as it were, to run the country, how to, to juggle that with the potentially negative implications of uh, courting uh, support from regional or international actors, uh, the implications of this for what is essentially a violent Islamist movement, which itself has close links to an array of uh, radical and jihadist organizations present in the country. Um, close relations with some and indeed antagonistic relations with others because the spectrum of, of radical Islamism, as we know, is not a, a straightforward or homogenous uh, uh, assembly of, of groups. And if we were to go back um, before the Taliban's uh, takeover of Kabul, um, this is pretty obvious to state, but the, the country even then under the, the previous government faced massive uh, humanitarian challenges, leaving aside, of course, all of these the critical human rights issues that have already been raised. Um, massive challenges uh, ranging from forced displacement due to conflict, rising poverty levels, severe food shortages, uh, a third or more of the population uh, food insecure uh, in mid-2021, uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, internally displaced, uh, and massive refugee movement across borders as well, even before the uh, takeover of Kabul. And this humanitarian crisis and the scale of the challenge uh, facing the, the new rulers in the country have been uh, deepened by the response, at least in the interim, of uh, key international actors. So. Uh, the International Monetary Fund has suspended payments to the country. Uh, the US Federal Reserve has frozen Afghanistan's foreign uh, currency re reserves of around uh, 9 billion. Uh, the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank, and various other uh, external actors similarly have frozen payments to the country. Why does it matter? Well, uh, before the Taliban takeover, 
of the annual budget of $11 billion was provided by donor funding. So this is, and uh, Nullifer has referred to the, the huge amounts of money that have been pumped in by various actors over the decades into, uh, into Afghanistan, uh, with all sorts of differing agendas, of course, underpinning them. But nonetheless, this is a country that has consistently, in recent decades, uh, in the, the context of uh, persistent conflict, been uh, dependent on external aid. So where does that leave the Taliban? Well, uh, in 2019, the country's exports amounted to just under $900 million uh, in the context of uh, an annual budget of $9 billion. Uh, the Taliban itself, according to a UN report, has enjoyed revenues, well, it's difficult to estimate for obvious reasons, somewhere between 300 million and 1.6 billion per annum. Revenues that accrue from extortion, kidnapping, uh, opium production, drug trafficking, as well as uh, rudimentary taxation uh, and resource exploitation in the territory under the movement's control. Um, However it's calculated, it's very obvious that there's a very significant gap between, as it were, the cost of running the country and available resources. And that in turn then flags the question, uh, to where do the new rulers turn? Where do you go? Um, and clearly, if domestic resources are not available, then external resources become necessary. Uh, I mean, the question of how the West deals with uh, the, the new rulers uh, is, is fraught in all sorts of ways. Uh, but it's pretty obvious that the US, for instance, would not necessarily be the, the, the first place the, the new rulers would go. In any case, uh, the Biden administration, for better or for worse, has stipulated all sorts of preconditions before it will engage with the Taliban. Uh, the movement of people out of the country freely, particularly those, of course, associated with the, the US, uh, presence in the country, uh, respect for human rights, uh, the establishment of an inclusive government, you know, the rhetoric is pretty obvious uh, in all sorts of ways. And of course, ensuring that the country does not become a safe haven for terrorists, um, though quite how withdrawing and uh, facilitating the accession of the Taliban to power fits with that particular objective is one we might all reflect upon. Um, at any rate, the record of the Taliban in relation to all of these is, is not encouraging. If you look at other actors, uh, you find uh, while a concern for human rights may not be uh, foremost, a concern with the threat of terrorism is, is consistently articulated. So for instance, the Russian ambassador met with the Taliban within 48 hours of the takeover of Kabul. Russian officials spoke optimistically of a new era uh, of peace, of reconciliation, of you know, freedom from conflict. Um, the Taliban has been on uh, a terrorist list, uh, an official list since 2008 in Russia, but meetings have been taking place since 2018 at least. However, any Russian assistance, any Russian cooperation with the Taliban is almost certainly going to be contingent on uh, Russian security concerns in Central Asia, and again, ensuring that the that Afghanistan does not become uh, a haven for violent Islamist organizations that threaten Russia, uh, Russia's neighbors, or Russia's perception of its security interests in the region. China similarly has made approaches to the Taliban leadership 
uh, again, officially from 2019, but unofficially for years before that. Uh, it, in the intervening period since the Taliban acceded to, to power in Kabul, there's been widespread expectation that China would play a major role in reconstruction. And of course, interesting question is why would China do that? And something that I think uh, has not been uh, noted sufficiently is uh, a major geological survey in Afghanistan uh, dating back, I think, to 2016, which uh, arrived at an estimate of just under $1 trillion worth of extract extractable rare earth metals uh, used in electronics and aviation, uh, clean energy, aerospace and defense industries in Afghanistan. So this is potentially uh, an extraordinarily wealthy, wealthy country. Uh, and if I know this, presumably the Chinese government knows it as well. Um, but again, China has concerns about uh, particularly uh, Uyghur Islamist organizations, the East Turkestan Islamic Organization or movement, uh, which is viewed, to say the least, uh, with suspicion and hostility in China. So the critical issue then here is on the one hand, the need uh, on the part of the new rulers of the country uh, for uh, external support, but on the other, the consistent uh, precondition that Afghanistan should not be a safe haven for terrorism, should not represent a threat either to neighboring countries or uh, indeed to, to the West. Um, but Afghanistan is, in many respects, all of these things. The Taliban are in power. The Taliban is a radical Islamist organization. Uh, the Taliban, apart from its own violent record, uh, has close links with an array of Islamist and jihadist groups in the, in the country, uh, both Afghan and, uh, and foreign fighters in particular. According to a UN report, there are upwards of 10,000 foreign fighters uh, in Afghanistan many in the ranks of the Taliban, but also in Al-Qaeda and in the Afghan affiliate of the so-called Islamic State, IS Khorasan. Um, and according to the UN, a significant part of Al-Qaeda's leadership resides in Afghanistan. Um, and Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are intimately linked through uh, an organization called the Haqqani Network. And the Haqqani Network in turn, uh, having been established by a so-called hero of the anti Soviet Jihad Jalaluddin Haqqani, who is also an asset of the CIA and the Haqqani network, particularly uh, under the, the leadership, as it were, Sirajuddin Haqqani, very closely located within power structures in Kabul uh, post the takeover. Uh, Sirajuddin himself is a senior uh, member of the, the new government. Um, and this is an organization, the Haqqani network, that again is widely believed to have very close links with Pakistani military intelligence, something of course the Pakistanis uh, deny, but again echoing some of the things that both Nulafar and, and Soraya have said. So you have uh, an organization described by uh, Admiral Mike Mullen, the US uh, Admiral, as an arm of Islamabad intelligence at the heart of government. And this exposes very much this dilemma that they, the, the Taliban face. Um, how to, to deal with uh, the external or the, the international community when its power base is uh, so closely built on links with radical Islamist organizations. In turn, as I said, the country plays host to, to an array of militants from Central Asia, 
um, from uh, Xinjiang uh, and, and elsewhere. And the difficulty for the Taliban, of course, is while there have been some efforts to, to monitor and restrict the activities of foreign fighters in the country, uh, action against any of these groups could have a negative impact both on its own support base, on its internal unity, and might also drive recruitment to more even more militant groups that are hostile to what they see as the narrow nationalistic agenda of the Taliban. So uh, Islamic State, uh, Khorasan uh, and Al-Qaeda have a global agenda rather than one that is simply confined to politics within recognized uh, state borders, as it were. Uh, and, okay. Um, so the, the, the key question then is how uh, the Taliban addresses these multiple challenges and how it does so, of course, would say a great deal about the uh, immediate and longer term stability or indeed instability of Afghanistan and will in turn say a great deal about the likelihood of consolidation of uh, Taliban power again or otherwise in the country. And I'll end there and hand over to Ruja Fazaeli. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Vincent. Um, sorry, I mute myself. Thank you very much. Uh, so following on from all the previous speakers, I would like to speak about uh, what we can and should do as a community to support um, at-risk uh, Afghan researchers, scholars, and practitioners. Uh, so here I'm speaking specifically about the university as a community, but this sense can and should go beyond the university setting. Um, we all have witnessed over the past months much of the desperation of people trying to leave Afghanistan um, in the wake of the Taliban's takeover. I have been following the exodus and especially the attempts of people leaving Kabul. Um, it has been wonderful to see a girls robotics team turning up in Mexico City and the girls national soccer team granted asylum in Portugal. Uh, wonderful to see them reach safety, but bittersweet also recognizing the tremendous draining effect all of this human migration will make upon the scientific and cultural life of Afghanistan in the future. Here in Trinity, um, a group has organized around our institutional engagement with scholars at risk to help support a prominent academic uh, with their ev evacuation and relocation plans. So without providing any overly specific details, this is a leader in the higher education sector who has been receiving uh, threats and is under increasing pressure from the Taliban uh, to come out of hiding where they currently are with their family. We have looked at the number of challenges they have been facing from imminent violence, pursuit and pressure by the Taliban, the challenges of out-of-date passports and no way of renewing them, and the related challenges of obtaining them visas, or in this case, a visa waiver, which has now expired since it was obtained a month ago. From the Trinity side, the challenges have been more mundane in terms of structural issues, um, that's setting up of uh, accounts, uh, getting office spaces, making sure uh, we secure housing. Uh, there has been such tremendous and heartening support from all across college, starting with the provost and moving right throughout so many of the schools and uh, also the long room hub 
uh, all of whom uh, have been tremendously generous and offered donations of time, money, and resources without thought of disciplinary footprints or outcomes. As a result, I'm hopeful uh, that if they can exit the country safely, soon we will be welcoming this colleague from Afghanistan to join us uh, for a talk here in the hub to share their expertise and to join the vibrant intellectual community at Trinity, which hopefully we do not take too much or too often for granted. But of course, this is just one scholar, not just, but one scholar. Uh, as of last week, I understand that the scholars at risk secretariat at New York University had received more than 900 applications and referrals from Afghanistan. This compares with 491 in all of 2019-20 academic year worldwide. Of those 900, at least 500 appear likely candidates for SAR assistance, with the remainder mostly students or members of the general public. Nearly 30% of the candidate to date identify as female. In order to meet this level of need, we need national level education sectors to step up. And we need to develop the political will to meet the scale of this crisis. As Rob Quinn uh, at Scholars at Risk remarked recently, Afghanistan's future is not lost so long as we support Afghanistan's scholars, teachers and students, lawyers and judges, civil society leaders and activists, writers and journalists, musicians and artists. This takes us to the critical importance of academic solidarity. Thus far, within the SAR network, over 200 institutions have indicated their willingness to host one or more suitable at-risk scholars or practitioners from Afghanistan, with more than 50% offering full or partial support, and Trinity is uh, one of these. Across this network, um, institutions have been advocating for government officials to ease restrictions on the visa categories, joining with human rights organization and the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission to call for an investigation into the situation in Afghanistan at the upcoming uh, 48th regular session of the UN Human Rights Council. Coordinating on evacuation lists and travel documents for priority cases in the event that flights or other travel options become available. And in Europe in particular, organizing an appeal to governments and EU institutions, pressing for a dedicated EU fellowship scheme for at-risk uh, at scholars and other dedicated funding streams. With regard to Afghanistan, these efforts will likely to continue for months and years more as scholars and their families seek to find ways out, uh, out of Afghanistan uh, through transit routes uh, or commercial flights sometimes overland via Pakistan, Iran, Uzbekistan, and other countries. So I have largely been uh, speaking wearing my administrative hat as Trinity's scholars at risk uh, representative. Uh, but to move back into my own role as a researcher of Middle East and Islamic civilizations, one of our challenges here as a particular university community in the midst of these changes in Afghanistan is to practice solidarity by practicing our commitment to, to critical discourse. So yes, we can and should stand in solidarity by working to find placements and funding for our colleagues from Afghanistan. But we can also practice solidarity 
whatever our discipline, by leaning into the scholarly debates, practices, and methodologies that mark out and protect the health of academic freedom in this place and worldwide. Healthy higher education communities must be grounded in the core values of equitable access, accountability, institu institutional autonomy, and social responsibility. By guarding these at Trinity and in Ireland, we also stand with our colleagues from Afghanistan, who for the, for the moment have lost the security of these things and with them access to a free and safe academic environment where equality, where, uh, sorry, quality teaching and research can flourish. Uh, with that said, I also want to flag that one of our, co our uh, colleagues at risk from Afghanistan is actually in, um, uh, in attendance. Um, so, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, we, we cannot, he cannot be a part of this because he is a researcher at risk, uh, but, uh, but it's good to, to see him on the list of the attendees. Thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you very much, Roja, and uh, a very uh, moving and, and I think fitting way to to conclude the, uh, the the first stage of this behind the headlines. And and like you, Roja, I would like to welcome uh, all of our audience, and particularly those who joined us either as re representatives from Afghanistan or from Afghanistan, uh, and indeed that includes uh, a potential scholar at risk who we hope will be able to join us. Um, and our thoughts are with you. Um, and uh, I would also like to commend all the speakers. We've had a number of um, comments coming in along with the questions to congratulate you on the clarity and the precision and the elegance with which you have addressed very complex histories and, and obviously a very difficult landscape. Um, so it's much appreciated. Many questions are coming in. Uh, please, uh, everybody listening, uh, you still have time if you want to ask a question, uh, put it into the Q&A panel at the bottom of the screen now. And we're going to come to those in, in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to just give our four panelists an opportunity uh, to, now that they've heard from each other as well, either to, to add any points that they feel they would like to have covered or to address very briefly, or to ask each other a question. If something has been said in the course of these discussions, which you would like to pick up, we might start with that. Um, is there anything that any of you would, would like to raise? And, and just raise your hand, that might be the quickest thing. Yes, Nelifa, please go ahead. Um, well, the question I actually, um, probably part of the question has been raised as well, which has been in the back of my mind, and it's very nagging as well, um, that there has been an enormous amount of silence from, you know, around the world in relation to the resistance movement that started in Afghanistan. Uh, it was, of course, very marginal. It was um, only a 5% of a country. And it was particular to a one ethnic community, although a lot of others went to join them. And you would think in a normal um, you know, world setting, um, an educated young Afghan man who has nothing to do with the past wars of the country personally, directly himself, because one of the problems which obviously I would have loved to address, but I couldn't, is the responsibility of the Afghan leadership in all of these crises. We can't just blame the outside world, Afghans take responsibility for their own part in all this. But you have 
a young man who's educated and he is wanting to say, look, I'm speaking for all the Afghans regarding all the affiliations, ethnic and, and uh, religious sects and everything. And I would like the world to provide some degree of support for me and my base of philosophy of trying to create some kind of a peaceful situation in Afghanistan. And he's been totally ignored. I mean, uh, perhaps maybe Vincent could reflect on that because of the geopolitics. Um, that why wouldn't the world at one point say, let's support one healthy, good politician in the country, as opposed to all these bunch of corrupt and, um, and, and people who have hands in, in, in Afghan's blood, all of the other leaders, in fact, do. Yeah, I, I might, Vincent, do you, are you happy to come in on that? Has there been a, a blindness on the part of, of the West? and international leaders to recognize the potential of resistance, individuals and groups? Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I, I know the answer, but I mean, I guess when you look back and I mean, Nellifer, you've done it yourself so eloquently. I mean, when you look back over the past 40 plus years, I mean, you can go back so much longer if, if, if you want to. Um, you know, it's it's the the age-old story of you know external actors focusing very narrowly on their conception of, of national self-interest, economic, political, or geopolitical. But whether you're you're talking about you know the, the the whole set of circumstances that you know both you and Soraya have described that gave rise to the emergence of the Taliban in the first instance. Um, and, you know, you go back further to the, you know, the construction of the, you know, the, the heroic Mujahideen figure. Um, this was Afghan politics, religious and otherwise, read through the prism of Cold War framing or read through uh, the, the interests of outside actors, particularly the US, of course. And, you know, the willful engagement then with blithe disregard for uh, human consequences and longer term consequences and consequences for women, particularly um, that engagement with uh, Pakistan or elements, at least in uh, the, the Pakistani political and, and military leadership over the decades. And quite honestly, I think, you know, the, the sort of things that you described that should be a concern for outside actors uh, sadly are nowhere on the list of priorities because what are seen to be far more important uh, issues and, and, and concerns take priority. I don't know if that answers it, and I don't think it's a particularly original observation, but, uh, you know, would that the world were a better place? I mean, I don't say that lightly. Thank you, Vincent. And we might come back to this question of uh, international responsibilities and where these have failed in the discussion. Uh, before I would Lots more questions coming in as I speak, but I just want to check, uh, Soraya, Roja, anything you wanted to add or, or to ask at this point? Uh, and I have, uh, Roja, yes, go ahead. Um, thank you very much. This is actually a question to both Soraya and Nilofar um, around uh, the rhetoric around Afghan women. Uh, so, uh, you know, in uh, 2001, and uh, Nilofar pointed to this, um, that uh, it was Laura Bush's speech on, uh, you know, saving Afghan women. Uh, and, and Soraya also, you said uh, that uh, th this is also war on women. Uh, but I wonder uh, how this time around uh, we, can, uh, we can talk um, 
about or with Afghan women, that it's not kind of this kind of image of a repressed Afghan women who needs to be saving. Uh, do you think there is the same narrative and rhetoric now, or do you think that's changing or needs to be changed? Excellent question, Soraya. I don't know what, uh, mm -hmm. if you want to come in on that now. Uh, sure, I I just have like a brief um, note on that, and then Nilofar can pitch in if she wants to. Um, so the whole, uh, for Afghan women, it is not the same narrative as the as 2001 or even before that. Um, we, we have been, you know, like as Vincent said, we have been through like decades and decades of war. This is a fact that everybody knows. But with that war um, comes a lot of opportunity for, for rebuilding that is not given. Um, but Afghan women came a very long way for the last two decades. We have had education women in most sectors uh, in Afghanistan. And the fact that Afghan women is so uh, such a hot topic for the Taliban and also the international community right now is because of all of their progress for the last uh, 20 years. Um, and, and here I also would like to pinpoint to, the, to one of the protests that was done. Um, it was organized by the Taliban where a group of women went out uh, to one of the universities in Kabul and they were all dressed um, all black without not even their eyes were showing. Um, when, when I saw this picture, you know, like as, as an Afghan woman that has worked for the last 20 years, like I had this chill down going down my spine because I have never seen an outfit like this in my entire life. And, and the Taliban has, is thinking this way because of our development for the last 20 years. They, they are bringing this picture to, um, to create this tension among all of the, not only Afghanistan, but the world because of everything that we have worked for, because they know women have changed. They have become much resilient, much more resilient, much more stronger and much like educated as well uh, in all over, all over Afghanistan, in any sector. And, and they fear it because they know how strong they have become. Um, I will only add exactly uh, in 2001, um, when the movie Kandahar came out, I was the one Afghan woman that was running around between so many cities and places. And um, one interview after another and talking about the atrocities. Um, the um, good and best thing that has happened, which I take away from the last 20 years, is that now in almost every city around the world, you have three of me and Soraya. And, you know, so there is a lot more of Afghan women were vocal, were speaking out, um, and therefore the diversity of voices as well as speak, although we all ask for the same thing um, at the end of the day. But um, so that part is the, the kind of a positive of, of that it will be difficult this time around to um, just kind of impose a certain image of Afghan woman, but that doesn't mean that it is not happening in the mainstream media and in some other media where there is that, exactly as, as Soraya pointed out, like that image of Afghan women covered in that style by the Taliban became a kind of a predominant news that here are a group of Afghan women who support the Taliban. We didn't see behind those um, black faces. We just kind of saw that image. So there's always that danger of 
whether you take Afghan woman situation out of its complex context and you place it in a kind of a quick hand to make it another justification for people calling for another war, so to speak. There is always in danger, um, some degree of danger to that. But one of, um, which I think is very important for us as Afghan women to monitor and guard it and point out at it. So we stop it before it becomes very predominant in news media. But one of the things that is also very interesting is that um, because Afghan women will of their own resilience, as Surya pointed out as well, will continue to fight because all the protests that you're seeing happening in Afghanistan, they're all led by Afghan women. And, um, and because of that, the Taliban are forced to some degree. This is why they're in such a difficult position right now, because they cannot close down the country the way they did before. And this is why I think there is a lot of back and forth between Pakistan and the, Qatar now has announced they have got five female ministers. So they are trying to somehow kind of find ways to impose their rule but accommodate a certain degree. And in my view, on the one hand, it forces them to accept things, but on the other hand, it might also be very superficial. And, and, and if that's the case, then it's more dangerous for Afghan women because by giving a very small degree of rights, people would be so desperate that they would accept it and allow the Taliban to have a say in other spheres of life for women, especially like in terms of political leadership. Um, they might allow women teachers to go back to school, but they may not allow women to engage in politics or become engineers and doctors or fly an aircraft. So because of that, um, we have to wait and, and, and sort of put pressures to make sure that that's not going to happen. Um, but I think that's which one of the other questions I think um, from one of your audience, if I understand correctly, is also an appalling silence from the Muslim world um, about the use of religion in, in, in Taliban's idea of treating women. Exactly. And I let me let me let me come to that question, Nelifa, because I agree with you. That's that's where we need to go next. And it's a question, uh, if you'll allow me to, to jump in, uh, this come in from Gabrielle Brocklesby, who says the Taliban quote Islam as their reason for controlling women and other social restrictions, why do the official sources of Islamic jurisprudence in Cairo, Baghdad, Turkey, Saudi, etc., raise their voices to point out to the rest of the world that leaving females without any education is not Islamic? So we do, we do have a wider concern here, obviously, about the question of how women are being portrayed, how they're being restricted, uh, that is not limited to the situation in Afghanistan. But I wonder if I could take that question from Gabrielle back to you, Soraya, because it was tremendously moving for you to focus on the image of a single school that was built over that 20 year period um, that, that now exists as a reflection of the progress that's been made and been made for women as well in Afghanistan. Our problem, of course, is we have the various stereotypes and images that, that Nelifa has described so vividly. Uh, and so little in the way of information coming directly from the ground now about what is happening in terms of women being denied access to education. Now, obviously, you mentioned in your talk that the, the Internet has been restricted. Communication is obviously difficult. Uh, people are being kept in their homes. But do you have any up to date information for us from colleagues, relatives, friends who you've been able to contact 
about what is actually happening. We're seeing diverse news reports, uh, some of them saying, well, women can still continue to go to university, but they have to be educated in a separate room, for example. Can you shed any light on what is actually happening? Yes. Um, so co-education uh, has been banned by the Taliban and they have officially put out a statement on that. And um, for women, there will be no education. However, for girls, um, they're said to be allowed to study until the sixth grade. So no higher than sixth grade. Um, so that's what's happening. But just like I, I would like to mention uh, one more point on, on how Islam is has to play uh, for how Islam plays for all the Afghan women at the moment and whether other countries agrees to it or not. So the Taliban, you know, with all of the rules and regulation that they have for women and education, sports and all the other sectors, they are coming up with their own interpretation of everything that is occurring to them on daily basis. They were uh, trained in, in Pakistan just for, for 20 years to fight this war and, and they had no plans other than winning, other than, you know, guns and arms. Uh, they have known nothing. So for them to be put in a spot, it's only an interpretation that only makes sense to them. So today it is making sense for them to allow girls to uh, study until sixth grade. Whereas by there is absolutely no question to men, you know, like, and this is why religion and Islam plays like a tool for them, aside from all of the political gains that they might have throughout all of this. Um, and, and also moving from this point onward, I back to like what I hear from friends and family, uh, family members. Um, I, I, I know friends who have been, you know, news anchors, they have been working in the finance sector, in, in a wide range of sectors, and they're just simply sitting at home right now, and, and they don't know what to do. And on daily basis, in, even in Ireland, when somebody asks me that, oh, but like, what happens to women? And, and I ask the question right back at them, and I say that, you know, like, somebody comes knocking on your door in the morning and tells you that after tomorrow, you're not allowed to go to school, go to work, or, or be in public, or, or make any appearance anywhere. How would the person feel? Somebody who has lived um, slightly, you know, freedom for the last 20 years. It's like, it's, it's very simple to understand the, the difficulty they are going through. And, and, you know, sometimes I hear a lot of opinion about people, whether they should support this or that or not, or if, it, if, or if this is really happening, or maybe the Taliban has changed, but, but they have not. And, and this, is, this, would, this should be the last guess by anyone. There are stoning women in the outer areas of Afghanistan. They are, um, they are beheading uh, people because of uh, doing different things. They are cutting hands. And these are all very brutal ways of punishments that is, uh, that is being practiced by the Taliban, which is the evidence as heavy as it, as it comes, it is the evidence for people like us outside of Afghanistan to understand that they have not changed. And it massively applies for women as well. 
Indeed, Soraya, and, and very well put. And I note uh, Margaret Robson in the Q&A has noted that uh, how good it is to see three, well, in fact, four women's faces on screen in this discussion, something that, of course, we take for granted um, and uh, we should perhaps not take for granted. Um, but I want to come on to um, two questions that go together, and, and perhaps this, is, this relates to the question of, of the responsibilities of the international community. Um, lots of questions are coming in about the role of Pakistan. Um, and Rafi Mohammed Yurish, uh, thank you, Rafi, for your question, um, has raised the issue of Pakistan and, and uh, the US and, uh, and asks what, what role can be, what role can the UN and other communities play in censoring Pakistan, in perhaps imposing sanctions and so on, in, in regulating Pakistan's role. Uh, but I think another question that has come in that's related to this from Cahill Byrne, though I've lost it now, is what can Ireland do at the UN to uh, ramp up pressure uh, either on, on uh, the new Taliban regime in Afghanistan or again, I suppose, on Pakistan? Vincent, I'll come to you, but I'm sure other people might like to talk about this. This very difficult question of, of what international diplomatic uh, groups and individuals can do is a vexed one, but uh, in your experience of other situations of intervention and withdrawal, other lessons we should have learned and haven't about, for example, the use of sanctions? Um, yeah, there's lots of different questions there. I mean, what Ireland can do, what the international community more broadly can do, and indeed the use of sanctions. I mean, sanctions, it's a generalization, but I think sanctions have proved to be a very crude and ineffective and quite often counterproductive tool in all sorts of settings. So that's that's the first thing I would say. I don't say it uh, you know, as a, or I don't state it as a principled objection to the use of sanctions, but what we've learned from decades of the use of sanctions um, is, is that quite often they hurt the people you uh, least want to, to, to hurt. Um, you know, people with economic and political power typically manage to evade uh, the impact of sanctions. What Ireland can do, I mean, again, uh, questions of what Ireland can do at the UN, for instance, we're in a particular position uh, chairing the UN Security Council. But again, without being too negative, uh, you know, the, the UN and particularly the UN Security Council is as good as its constituent members allow it to be. And in particular, it's as good as the veto-wielding members of the Security Council allow it to be. So, I mean, Ireland is in a position, I would imagine, and I'm sure this is on the thoughts of people in DFA as we speak, you know, to at least to push for symbolic, rhetorical, you know, that, that commitment to uh, some degree of respect for rights, for diversity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but how that translates into practical reality in, in Afghanistan, when, you know, as I said earlier, other supervening interests uh, are, are at issue uh, is, is hard to tell. Obviously, a lot of people are uh, concerned with the question at the bare minimum of how to ensure that humanitarian assistance gets through to the country, setting aside the, uh, the, the rather longer term, you would think, question of any recognition of the, the Taliban. Um, uh, and that in itself is, is a, a tricky one, but clearly 
there is a, a moral imperative at work there that you would hope is uh, superior to political concerns short or long term. I mean, the need simply to address this extraordinary um, humanitarian crisis. But again, sadly, the international community has proved itself uh, to be immune to uh, what seems like the, the, the logical requirement to address humanitarian crisis elsewhere. You know, Yemen, a country that I've done some work on, um, springs to, to mind. So what Ireland can do, what, how we can ensure that, that aid gets through, I mean, it, it, it's, it's difficult, but uh, um, it's something that absolutely needs to be tackled. Um, what the UN can do, I mean, what the UN can do depends very much on what China and Russia will allow the, the UN to do in, in terms of you know, structural political responses to, to what's happening in, the, in Afghanistan. Thanks, Vincent and Yulusina. An interesting question on uh, China from UN Pan, who's, who's asking, I think, um, a, a, the very important question of, of what China's role is going to be in replacing the US as a kind of hege hegemonic figure um, and a very well put point, I think, there. I, I want to come on in a second to the question of humanitarian aid that's been raised by a number of people in the questions. But briefly, um, or as briefly as, as is possible, uh, I just want to ask a question that, that really relates partly to Nelifer's opening talk, but that all of you, I think, have touched on in one way or another. Obviously, a situation like this demands that we have information, demands that we have images, demands that we have reporting from Afghanistan, so we know what's going on. Um, Nelifer, Soraya, you've worked, you are working as journalists in this field, a very difficult field. Nelifer, what would your overview be of how effective journalism and the media have been in the current crisis? Have, uh, have journalists done their job? Have they been able to do their job? Or are we only seeing just a fraction of the picture? Well, I actually would say that, um, you know, there are a number of reporters that their work is commendable because they have persisted to stay in the country, despite the fact of the chaotic withdrawal, despite the fact that there is no longer the kind of security that would have been provided to them by their own networks in the past. Um, so it is very important and I think I would encourage that. The difficulty in a lot of that is especially for some female reporters as well as the restriction on travel, not being able to get out in the countryside. Um, although I have to say Jeremy Bowen this morning was um, had a great piece from Helmand province. So um, they do try to get out and do, do their jobs. The difficulty of course is the reliance on the Afghan journalists in the past, the local reporters, who could have been of a big assistance to them. And they are mostly in hiding where there are afraid of the Taliban because the foreigners can flush their passports at the airport and leave or get evacuated, but it's the Afghans who are at risk. So because of that, obviously, the work of the journalists are restricted. Now, mind you, um, looking at the way the media works, when there is a big event happening, everybody goes and covers. In my view, the real story begins after all the reporters leave. And especially the media will not be able to sustain covering Afghanistan the same way because surely enough, there will be another crisis highlighted. This is the nature of the Western media as it is. So soon enough, we will stop 
hearing about Afghanistan, it's already not in the headlines anymore. It is on a down some item in the bottom um, of the news coverage, unless there is an explosion, an execution, something really catastrophic and tragic happens, we will not hear about Afghanistan. So therefore, it is very important to not turn our eyes away from it just because the news media doesn't cover it as a highlight. And therefore, as I said, the real work begins now and access to the countryside and, and harder places, which is not in the spotlight. And that's why what Soraya was pointing out in terms of um, you know, executions, things that are happening already that we Afghans have access to because we contact our family members. Like that, therefore, it also is our responsibility as Afghans not to disengage because we are disappointed in the larger community for not doing what they should do in Afghanistan. Thank you, Nelifer. And, and Soraya, I don't know if you want to add to that, but in, with your own experience of, of working with stories from Kabul, for example, and, and, and the telling of these tales and stories and narratives and bringing them out of the country, um, how, how is that to be sustained when obviously fatigue sets in in you know, Western audiences? I mean, how do we keep this story in the headlines? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a it's an excellent question to ask uh, ourselves at this point. Um, and I would like to reflect back on something that happened about a month ago or a couple of weeks ago, uh, where a woman journalist by Al Jazeera went and interviewed um, the Taliban. Uh, this interview gave a whole a whole wrong image to the world that yes, you know, the Taliban are okay with women. And, and I have to say that this was done by uh, white female journalists um, who took the role uh, to bring a picture of Afghan women to the, to the world and, and bring a very uh, wrong idea of what's happening in Afghanistan. So we always have to be selective of, of who we listen to after this and which stories and which reports are we paying attention to. Unfortunately, um, a big number of journalists, um, Afghan journalists, have left Afghanistan. A big number of academics, a big number of educated people, a whole generation of you know talented and skilled people have left Afghanistan, which uh, which only makes it harder to reflect on the realities on the ground. And and also uh, we have to pay attention that whatever we listen is not a white narrative, you know, because. A wide narrative is much different than the reality of uh, the grounds. Um, so I think as long as we are paying attention to these points now and in the future, um, we should be fine. And, and in my own research, I refer to this as a bottom-up approach, which is a people's approach. You know, we have to listen to, um, to the stories that is coming through um, grassroots, you know, people in Afghanistan. And it will only get harder and harder, but um, unfortunately, there is not much of choice left. Thank you, Soraya. And I think that's so well put that these grassroots stories have to be facilitated and channels have to be kept open for that. Uh, so a very welcome point I think you've made. We're, we're drawing to a close, but I want to finish with a question that's come up from so many people about how can we help um, and, and combine the question that's come in from Rory Montgomery a public policy fellow with the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, who says, how likely is EU or Irish humanitarian aid to be able or to be allowed to get through to support vulnerable people, apart from aid and welcoming refugees, 
Is there anything else useful we could do? And I want to combine that with, I think, a, a very moving uh, question that's come in from Sebastian Casper. And Sebastian asks, would you mind giving postgraduate students and young scholars a hint of how they could support offering education to displaced or threatened Afghans so that a potential gap in education is avoided? And there are many more questions that have come in um, from audience members who obviously are, are so keen to think about ways to help, but so frustrated because the routes to help are difficult as always in these situations. But Roja, we have, uh, thanks to your work, got some view of positive ways forward. Um, is there anything you can tell us about, first of all, what you know about the humanitarian aid situation? And secondly, if you can help with that question of what, what can we do um, beyond what has already been discussed, particularly in terms of education? Um, sure. Um, perhaps uh, uh, Soraya and, and Niloufar want to come here as well uh, on the aid front. Uh, but, you know, we, we all witness kind of the heartbreaking, uh, as I said, exodus of people are trying to get out. Uh, and, I, and I really felt, um, you know, it, it was... Uh, each state fending for themselves. Uh, you had chartered planes uh, and each, you know, because we were working very closely trying to get some people on these chartered planes and it was impossible because you needed the goodwill of the state. Uh, and uh, it, it really, you know, I'm, I'm sure you all remember that very heartbreaking uh, um, vision of uh, people clambering to airplanes, trying to get out on these chartered planes. Uh, so a, a humanitarian uh, help in that sense, trying to get people out is very important. But you also need kind of, uh, you know, if for people, for example, who don't have passports, who can't get passports, uh, who need, um, you, you need a political will there as well. Uh, so you need a kind of a few states working together to try, you know, if you want to bring somebody uh, to Ireland, either from Pakistan or Iran, you need the Iranian government or the Pakistani government to, to help to try to get them out. Um, and uh, from what I understand, the borders are, are quite dangerous uh, at the moment. Border crossing, land crossings are, are quite dangerous. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really real and tangible. People are, uh, are people's lives are in danger um, and, and, and uh, some of them are being pursued by the Taliban. But what we can do, especially I saw a few questions from postgraduate students. Um, so, um, the, for example, the uh, group that we have set up in, in Trinity at the moment to, to try to help uh, Afghan scholars, uh, we hope to extend that, that uh, we, can, we can try to organize bursaries for both undergraduate and postgraduate students. And I know universities across Ireland and those uh, scholars at risk, in the scholars at risk, uh, are trying to do the same. And there is the universities of sanctuary as well. So we are working with them too. Uh, but the students, if uh, you know, if you do want to get involved, you can email me if you want to get involved with uh, this particular endeavor of trying to to help scholars at risk and students at risk. So those of you who are in Trinity, uh, do email me. I'll, I'll put my email in in the chat. Uh, we also, you know, we also need funds. Um, so uh, so we need the funds, um, kind of more sustainable funds. So, uh, you know, we, we, um, I, I know uh, that there has been an ask from scholars at risk uh, to all uh, university presidents in Ireland and, and elsewhere as well uh, at the network saying, can, can each university provide uh, one fellowship at least? But to think about it as well, like one fellowship, is that enough? You bring the whole family for one year? There needs to be some sort of action, some sort of sustainability. Uh, 
uh, that if, if somebody is coming, because like, uh, you know, our experience in Trinity has been uh, every, you know, it's been really heartening. People have been, especially individual schools giving, but you need a bigger pot of money. So again, if there are people in the audience who do want to help financially, um, uh, you, you know, you can email me as well. <laughs> we are trying to set up an account at the moment in Trinity. Um, so any any financial help would, uh, would, would also be very welcome. So I'll, I'll put my email in the chat if that's okay. Um, thank you, thank you, Roja. And and we are running out of time, but I just want to pick up on what Roja said and and let the audience know uh, that uh, we'll be following up uh, on this session with some information about how those of you who who want to help um, can contribute to the Scholars at Risk initiative that uh, Roja and several others in Trinity are organizing. And uh, again, our thanks to Roja for, for spearheading that initiative. And we hope there will be many more uh, for the many more scholars who'll be uh, at risk and, uh, and displaced. We have so many questions and comments that we haven't had time to get to. Uh, and apologies to those of you who asked questions and, and didn't have them answered, but I think everyone will agree we've had an extraordinarily rich and also very moving uh, discussion uh, and set of presentations this evening. It's been a real privilege to listen to all four of you and to, to hear in particular about the, uh, the first-hand experience that uh, some of you have had. Um, by way of closing, uh, let me thank again the John Pollard Foundation, which supports the Behind the Headlines uh, series, and to thank the team at the Trinity Long Room Hub who put this event together particularly uh, Francesco Rafferty, and Aoife King, my thanks to you. I want to extend my warmest thanks uh, to our panelists, um, to Nelifa, to Soraya, to Vincent and to Roja for taking the time uh, to make this contribution this evening. It really is much appreciated, so thank you. And finally, let me thank everyone who's joined us in the audience this evening. Uh, it's been tremendous to be back with Behind the Headlines uh, it's been, I think, salutary to open with such an important subject that we must pay attention to you to, and all of you have, have contributed in the interest that you've shown and the questions that you've put in. Please do uh, join us again. There'll be many more events over this academic year. So keep an eye on the Trinity Long Room Hub website as always. Uh, and uh, we hope that we will see you again at one of our discussions or events in the very near future. But for now, my thanks again to our panelists and good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.